Amen. Well, I would invite you to please turn in God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to come to this passage that I was originally planning to preach about a month ago on October 1st. And as some of you know, there was a series of a number of uh, God-ordained events that um, prevented that from happening until now. So, Lord willing, it's actually going to happen now. That We'll be here in Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17, clothed in the splendor of Christ. Being clothed in the splendor of Christ. And in Colossians 3, Paul is addressing the practical and ethical implications of the theological truths that he's been proclaiming earlier in chapters 1 and 2. Truths that revolve around the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is burdened that the Colossian believers are, are being taken captive by false teaching that is ultimately pulling them away from confidence in the supremacy, the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ and of all of his work. And so as he begins to work out these very practical, ethical details in chapter 3, he's contrasting all of this with the worthless efforts of self-made religion that is promoted by false teachers that he is burdened by, that he's again speaking about earlier in chapters 1 and 2. And so he's explaining here how it is Christians are to live in view of our union with Christ. Now, I'm going to focus on verses 12 to 17, but just to give us the context, I want to begin reading in verse 1. So I'll read from verse 1 down through verse 17. And so let's hear the eternal word of our God, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. Our Father, how we thank you for all of the riches of your glory and mercies in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his blood you have forgiven the sins of all who trust him and look to him. You've given us peace with you and given us the hope and power of your eternal love and life in Christ. And we pray that you would please help us know what it means to be your people and how it is we're to put on the clothes of Christ's splendor. Father, please help us to understand and respond in obedient faith to what you're saying to us in this text. And please help me to be faithful and clear in proclaiming your word. We pray all of this for your glory in our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't think it takes much work for any of us to observe in our fallen world that our world is indeed consumed with, among other things, a preoccupation with fashion and appearance. That's no new news to anyone. But infatuation with clothing styles and accessories for everything from head to toe has produced a multi-billion dollar industry that seemingly never sleeps. And so we're bombarded with advertising trying to, trying to entice us to buy, uh, to buy into the latest fads so that we can be on the cutting edge of cool in our appearance. Now, I might say that as a matter of stewardship and wisdom, it is good to have a reasonable regard for our clothing and our overall appearance. That's not unreasonable. It's good to dress in ways that are appropriate to the various contexts of our lives and for Christ's glory. But I think we all understand that there is a way over the top infatuation with fashion and appearance in our culture. And for any of us who are Christians, as we've heard here at the beginning of chapter 3, we are called to set our minds on the things above where Christ is. That's what Paul exhorts there in verses 1 to 4. In other words, we're to be preoccupied with following Christ and with being clothed in his glory and goodness. In light of our identity in him, in light of our present responsibilities in him, in light of our future destiny in being with him forever in heaven. In other words, we're to be consumed with our spiritual clothes, if you will, not so much our earthly clothes. And we're to be consumed with this not only individually, but corporately as Christ's body. And so we're to passionately pursue being clothed with the splendor of Christ. And this is what Paul is addressing here in chapter 3. 
after this general call that Paul makes in verses 1 to 4, that we are to live a Christ-centered life focused on the things above, on not on earth, he then exhorts us in verses 5 through 11 to put to death and to put off all of the e- evil and ugly clothing, if you will, of our old sinful selves. And you notice what he says there in verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you and then down in verse 8 he says put them all away and in verse 9 he says you have put off the old self with its practices and he's using this imagery of clothing that is to be put off and other clothing that is to be put on and so verses 5 through 11 is all about putting off the old clothes of our pre-christian lives Well, now then, in verses 12 to 17, Paul turns to the positive contrast of of our new clothes in Christ, those that we are to put on. The new clothes, we might say, as I've said, of Christ's splendor that correspond to our new self, to our new life in Christ. And Paul uses this kind of language elsewhere. Over in, over in Romans chapter 13 and verses 13 and 14, he, he talks about being clothed with Christ and putting on Christ. And as we lead into verses 12 to 17, he's already spoken of this actually in verse 10 when he says that Christians have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We've been made new in Christ. We belong to the new man of Christ. And again, not only individually, but corporately as his people. So the whole thrust of verses 12 to 17 is about what we are to put on. What we are to put on in the clothes of Christ's splendor. And we can summarize it this way, and, and, and this is really bound up even in the title of the sermon, but the heart of what Paul is saying in verses 12 to 17 is this. Beloved, put on the clothes of Christ's splendor. That's the big idea. That is the main point of this whole passage. Beloved, put on the clothes of Christ's splendor. You see, Jesus designs to clothe his body with his splendor, and every member of his body then is called to put him on. And so in our text, God's people, we who belong, any of us who belong to Christ and are his people, what Paul gives us here are three ways that we must put on the clothes of Christ's splendor. And these these three ways involve, first of all, our identity— Second of all, our, um, let me remember what the point is, our uh, mentality, there it is, put on our identity and put on our mentality, and then also it involves our ministry. Those are the three ways, our identity, our mentality, and our ministry. Now, what I'm hoping to do this morning is look at the first two of those ways, our identity and our mentality, and then, Lord willing, next time we'll look at the third of those ways, our ministry. But all of these are bound up within the splendor of Christ that we are to put on. So let's look at the first of these ways, and I'll put it this way, that we are to embrace our corporate identity in Christ. 
As God's people, we are to embrace our corporate identity in Christ. And notice what Paul says there at the very beginning of verse 12. He says, put on then, and then he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's speaking of our corporate identity in Christ. Now, throughout this letter, Paul emphasizes our corporate identity in Christ as believers. In fact, at the very beginning of the letter, in verse 1 of chapter 1, he refers to believers as saints and as faithful brethren. And he's speaking there of our identity. And then earlier in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 4, he says that we have died and we have been raised with Christ and that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And he's speaking there about our union with Christ, again, about our identity in having died and now being raised to life with Christ in God. And now in verse 12, he again speaks of our corporate covenant identity as God's people. And these are not casual, uh, be quick to move on kinds of statements when he says that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's reinforcing our corporate identity as God's people, and we are to embrace this. It's the first aspect of putting on Christ's splendor, to embrace and to know and to cherish and to rejoice in who we are in Christ. How beautiful this is. He says we are God's chosen ones, and this speaks of the doctrine, of the truth, of, of God's election, of his sovereign, gracious choosing of believers to receive all of the riches of his blessings in Jesus Christ. Though we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment and condemnation, he has chosen us to receive the fullness of his blessings in Christ. God's choosing is not based on any merit or worth in us, but it is purely on the basis of God's sovereign grace. And then Paul goes on to say that we are holy, meaning that we are fully set apart by God to his purposes and to his will. And then Paul also says that we are beloved that we are beloved, meaning that we who are in Christ, whom God has chosen and made holy and brought to himself, we are beloved. We're the objects, we're the recipients of God's holy, saving, eternal love in Jesus Christ. And for every single one of us who are in Christ, this identity speaks of our beautiful, rich dignity in who we are in Christ, our corporate identity in him. Now, what's intriguing with all of these terms that Paul uses and packs in here together, Paul is drawing upon rich covenant language from the Old Testament. In other words, language that God used frequently in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, to speak of his people Israel. For instance, hear what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can feel free to look there or to just listen. But God is speaking through Moses as he is preparing the nation of Israel to enter into his promised land. And beginning in verse 6, he says this, and I'll read through verse 8. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, 
to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. He says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you hear what he's saying in that, that passage, the language that he's using of God's choosing, of God's love, of God's uh, uh, setting them apart to be holy? That's the language that Paul's drawing on in Colossians chapter 3. But what's intriguing then within all of this is that in Colossians 3, Paul is speaking primarily to a Gentile audience. In other words, to people who don't come from a Jewish background, but from Gentiles. And what he's affirming is that in Christ, who is all in all, all of these covenant blessings are now known by all of God's people who are in Christ. He's chosen both Jews and Gentiles from among both Jews and Gentiles to know his mercies, his blessings in Christ. And so he's thus affirming our full corporate identity as God's people. And of course, this flows from what Paul has just said in verse 11, where he says, There is not Jew, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And we are then in the new covenant, God's covenant people. And God wants us to know and to embrace our corporate identity in Christ. It's the first way that we embrace the fullness of his splendor and are clothed in the riches of his splendor. It means to humbly and to thankfully think of ourselves as we are, not according to our performance, not according to our personality, not according to anything else in our lives except that we are God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. To not think of ourselves according to myriads of worldly distinctions that we can easily make, such as ethnic distinctions or economic distinctions or educational distinctions, or vocational distinctions, or any other category of distinction. But rather for every single one of us, with all of God's people, to embrace and to cherish our corporate identity in Christ. And so if we're to faithfully put on the clothes of Christ's splendor, it begins with the assurance, the assurance, beloved, that we belong to God in Christ that we are his chosen, holy, and beloved people, and that all, that all that Christ accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection, the forgiveness of our sins, uh, redemption and freedom from the bondage of sin and, and death is now ours. We've been adopted as God's children. This is our identity. And he's in the process then of making us what we are in Christ. I like to think of it this way, uh, maybe to help us understand the significance of embracing our identity. Think of it this way. When an athlete puts on the uniform of the team that they belong to, they do so because of their identity as a member of the team. In other words, they put on the uniform because they already belong to the team. 
And so the uniform doesn't make them a part of the team, but rather the uniform expresses the identity that they already have as a member of the team. And so maybe in a slightly similar way, putting on the clothes of Christ's splendor begins with embracing our identity in him. We already belong to his family. We are his chosen, holy, and beloved ones through faith in Christ. And being assured of this, then that helps us to be in a place to put on the rest of the clothes of Christ's splendor. So that's the first point. The first way that we do this is to embrace our corporate identity as God's people in Christ. Our corporate identity. Well, this leads to the second way, and I'll describe it this way, that second of all, we are to cultivate our corporate mentality in Christ. Cultivate our corporate mentality in Christ. Listen to what Paul goes on to say there in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and here it is, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, this is very straightforward, but Paul is identifying here five virtues that are to characterize our corporate mentality as Christ's people. Flowing from and bound up within our identity, these we could call five dispositions or mindsets or attitudes of our hearts. Kind of summarizing all of that by saying our corporate mentality. And this has to do with those characteristics that are to drive our mentality towards each other and toward other people as well, including unbelievers. These are mentalities that should mark our lives as God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. And it's interesting, these five virtues that Paul identifies in some ways likely contrast with five vices that he speaks of earlier in verse 8, when he says that we're to put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from, it, from your mouth. Uh, to some extent, these positive things he says in verse 12 sort of contrast with those negative matters in verse 8. And so I want to just probe into these five different characteristics of the mentality that we're to have and just explore and kind of meditate on those a little bit together. And so the first part of our mentality to cultivate involves compassion. Compassion. He says we're to put on compassionate hearts. Now the King James Version expresses the meaning of this compassion by referring to it as bowels of mercy. And that really gets at the picture that Paul is painting when he speaks of compassionate hearts. The word here in the Greek that is used for heart is the Greek word splagna. I don't often quote Greek words, but this is a word that actually sort of pictures the force of what he's talking about. I mean, splagna just kind of comes out of the bowels of our being, so to speak, if you get the picture. It just kind of sounds like that. What Paul is talking about is compassion, or we could say mercy, in the deepest part of our emotions. In the deep inward parts of our emotions, there is to be, again, as the King James Version says, bowels 
of mercy, bowels of compassion that would overflow in our lives. It's the first aspect of this corporate mindset we're to have. This has to do with the deep emotion of pity for others, a deep emotion of pity for others. A form of the same word is used in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when we're told of Jesus that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. It's a form of the same word because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We also see a form of the same word later in Matthew chapter 20 in verse 34 where there it refers to the pity that Jesus had for two blind men that he subsequently healed. We're told there that he had pity for them, a deep emotion of mercy and compassion for them. And so this compassion that we are to put on, that is to be a part of our increasing mentality, has to do with a sensitive and sympathetic tenderness toward others. And let's specify it, towards one another in the local church. Toward all people, yes, but particularly within the local church to which we belong, the local church to which Paul was speaking, it's to be specified particularly in that context. A sense of sensitivity and sympathy and pity and tenderness towards one another. And so it's a mentality of heartfelt compassion that ultimately recognizes that every single one of us Fundamentally, we are weak, we are troubled, we are fallen people who live in a broken and fallen world. And so it's a compassion that recognizes that we're all impacted in various ways by the ravages of sin, both our own sin as well as the sin of others. We all suffer in varying degrees because of the ravages of sin. And so a heart of compassion, bowels of mercy for others, like Jesus has for all people, is a mentality that seeks not to crush, not to devour, not to destroy others, but it's a mentality that seeks to rescue and to restore and to bless others. And to know that every single individual in varying degrees is in need of such compassion, just as we ourselves are. So that's the first aspect of this corporate mentality, a a deep emotional pity, compassion, care, sensitivity, concern for one another, seeking to rescue and restore and bless rather than destroying. Well, that leads to the second aspect of this mentality that we're to put on. We're to cultivate a mentality of kindness. Mentality of kindness. This is a mentality that is eagerly disposed and intentionally disposed to do good, to be kind to others. Whether such kindness is expressed in the simplicity of a warm and a welcoming smile to someone, 
maybe an affirming hand on the shoulder, or doing good to others in all kinds of practical and spiritual ways, a mentality of kindness is one that is eager to help and to bless others. I can tell you by way of of testimony for some of the things that the Lord has had for my family and I over the last month, we have been overwhelmed by the kindness of God demonstrated through so many of you in so many different ways. Praying for us, expressing words of care, other tangible expressions of care, just things that have been kind. We've been so blessed by that, so encouraged by that, so helped by that. Because there's a rich and a wonderful mentality of kindness for the glory of Christ that has ministered to us in deep, wonderful ways. And we're so thankful. And this kindness is is a kindness that is fundamentally God's kindness displayed in, in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and displayed in myriads of ways, but most significantly in the earthly ministry of Christ. Think about all of the different kinds of miracles that Jesus did. Raising the dead, casting out demons, healing the blind, feeding the hungry, and on down the line. And ultimately the fullest demonstration of kindness in going to the cross to die a substitutionary death on behalf of helpless, hopeless sinners like you and like me. God is is overwhelmingly kind in so many indescribable ways. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6 verse 35 that, that God is even kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And if that is true of God in the ways in which he causes the sun and the rain to shine and to fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous, if God is so abundantly overwhelmingly kind to evil people, How much more ought we who are chosen and holy and beloved of God to have a mentality, a disposition of kindness toward one another in big ways and in small ways? Well, third, the third aspect of this mentality is humility. Humility. I like the way one scholar describes humility. I think accurately he says, humility, quote, is the posture of one who submits to the lordship of Christ, end quote. (laughs) If you know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, all the riches of God's care and provision and mercy and love and grace and truth and righteousness in him, and if you submit to him as Lord, that means you're a humble person, growing as a humble person. It's the posture of one who submits to the lordship of Christ. And humility, then, is the direct opposite of proud, selfish, self-centeredness. Rebellious pride and self-centeredness. So humility willingly and joyfully submits to the lordship of Christ and is therefore concerned about his glory, his interests, and his will. Now, Paul speaks of this humility many other places throughout his letters, and and the whole of Scripture testifies to this humility. Uh, But one of those most noticeable places with Paul is in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
And listen to what Paul says there, beginning in verse 3, and how he draws upon the power and the pattern of humility in Christ. He says in verse 3, Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the power, that is the pattern of humility that we now are to live in and to exemplify in having a humble mentality ourselves. And we have to cultivate this, as we have to cultivate a, a heart of compassion, and we have to cultivate a disposition of kindness, so we have to cultivate a, a disposition of humility. Peter speaks of this. Remember proud, arrogant, self-righteous, self-dependent Peter. He had come to know this humility, and so he speaks in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, when he says, in view of Christ who is our chief shepherd, he says, interesting language here, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Interesting how he draws on that same language of clothing ourselves, isn't it? Somebody has said, and some of you have heard me say this probably many times before, uh, but it's right. It's, they've said humility is the oil that smooths out all of our relationships and indeed it does indeed it does humility is part of the mentality we must cultivate as God's people well then the fourth part of this mentality Paul says is meekness it is meekness some translations like the new American standard or the new international version translate the term here as gentleness and really both of those terms are, are pretty synonymous with the sense of the word here. The meaning of meekness, the meaning of gentleness, does not mean wimpiness. It doesn't mean being a doormat, but rather it means, in essence, power or strength under control. It means that all of one's resources, gifts, abilities, opportunities, everything... All of it is harnessed under the control of the Spirit of God to be used to be a blessing to others. Meekness is a sense of power or strength under control that uses all that God has given and called us to for the maximum benefit and blessing of others. One uh, lexicon, a, a dictionary basically of Greek words, defines this meekness as, quote, the quality of not being overly impressed with oneself or with one's sense of self-importance. It's a recognition that whatever I am, that whatever I've been given, whatever opportunities, responsibilities, gifts, everything, are to be used for the maximum benefit and blessing of others. Now, one way that I think of meekness is I think of my dentist. 
Um, our dentist is, is, by personality, maybe he's somewhat meek. Actually, he's recently retired, so we're still kind of bitter and upset at him about that. He's been our dentist for over 20 years, and he has the gall to retire. Uh, but we like the new guy okay, too. We're still kind of warming up to him. But, but our dentist is meek, not so much in personality, but think about when you're sitting in that chair and you're laid back and your mouth is wide open and you are totally vulnerable, Aren't you glad that your dentist, hopefully like my dentist, is meek in how well he practices dentistry at that moment? I had to have some dental work done not too long ago, and, and you know, they're drilling and scraping and poking and doing all these kinds of things, but he's doing so in a way that is harnessing all of his training, all of his abilities, all of his, of his knowledge for the benefit of my teeth, and he did a good job. And so it's all very precise and all very accurate and all very careful. And I'm grateful for that because my dentist is, is exercising power under control. He's not just going off on his own wild ideas with his drills and with his, with his uh, syringes and everything else. He's exercising power under control. Beloved, that's what meekness is. It's not being harsh. It's not flying off the handle. It's not going crazy, but it's harnessing everything under the control of the Spirit ultimately for the maximum benefit and blessing of others, to be meek, to be gentle. Jesus himself says that he is this way. Remember what he says in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29? He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle. It's the same word. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's the great physician. He knows the realities of the infirmities of our sinful soul, and he knows how to minister to us perfectly and with gentleness for our maximum good and blessing in him. And we're stewards of that meekness and to have that mentality in our relationships with one another and with all people. Well, this leads to the final mentality that we're to cultivate as God's people, and it is patience. Patience. Now, I would guess for Many, if not all of us, as it is for me, even as I say that word again, there's just instant conviction of how impatient I often am. In myriads of contexts, even driving here this morning, being impatient with what somebody else does on the road. It's so significant that Paul speaks of patience because this is immediately relevant and significant in our relationships, is it not? And the sense of patience has to do with long-suffering. That's what it literally means, to suffer a long time and to be willing to be patient, especially in the face of insult and offense and hurt that we can experience from others. Hurt and, and offense and insult that comes because of the weaknesses, the failures, the sins, and the immaturities of others. And to be patient means that we don't retaliate, that we don't seek revenge, that we don't fly off the handle. And boy, we need the Spirit of God to produce that in us, don't we? And Paul is saying this is part of how we're clothed with the mentality of, of Christ and to cultivate this 
in all of our relationships with one another. God himself is patient. So many places this is spoken of as well as demonstrated. For instance, Psalm 103, verse 8, we read, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. There it is, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And again, just think about how Jesus often demonstrated this patience even with his own disciples. And for instance, in in John chapter 16, verse 12, nearing the end of this mission discourse that he is speaking to them before he goes to the cross, he knows their weakness, he knows their sin, he knows their frailty. And in John 16, verse 12, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. What a wise and a caring and patient shepherd he is. He knows what we can and what we cannot bear. And oh, how we need to be patient with one another. Never wavering from the truth, but showing great patience with one another as we grow in both our understanding and our application of the truth. You've Many of you have been around little babies as they begin to learn to walk. It's no surprise. They don't learn that immediately, do they? It takes time. We're watching that with our precious little granddaughter, Alba. She's beginning to connect the dots, and and for a few weeks she's sort of been standing, and now she's beginning to take little steps. Well, it doesn't all happen all at once. And so there's kind of this inbred natural inclination to to want to be patient. Oh, come on, sweetie, you'll get it, and we're helping walking around. Well, how much more should we be that way with one another as we grow and learn to walk with Christ, caring for one another and being patient with one another? Well, beloved, these are aspects of the mentality, of the corporate mentality that we are to cultivate, a sense of humility, a sense of of compassion, a sense of kindness, a sense of meekness, and this sense of patience. And Paul speaks about these things in many other places as well, as do other passages of Scripture. We've looked at some. There are many others where these things are echoed in various ways. But what I want to highlight is with all five of these mentalities that we're to cultivate, heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, these are all different items, if you will, in the beautiful wardrobe of Christ's splendor that we are to put on. And indeed, how vibrant and life-giving are the garments of Christ's majesty with which we are to be clothed. And again, I want to just emphasize these are corporate. They're all to be being cultivated in all of us, flowing from our corporate identity. And what this means is that all of these mentalities contribute to the forming and the building and the preserving and the strengthening and the beautifying, if you will, of the body of Christ. Not just in a general sense, but think about it even in a particular sense in in this local church. We're one small aspect of, of the body of Christ localized in this local church, and he designs and he works in us and through us for us to put on these mentalities and to thereby contribute to the beauty and the splendor of our clothing in him collectively so that we'll bear even greater witness of him to the world and show the world how beautiful and good and real he is because of his work in us. 
And I rejoice, as I know the other pastor elders do as well, uh, that God is doing such wonderful things. And we see so much evidence of the fruit of these kinds of things in so many. So mostly for all of us, the call is just keep doing this more and more. Keep embracing your identity in Christ. Keep embracing your your, uh, mentality in Christ. Keep cultivating that. Well, as we grow in our identity, as we grow in our mentality, this leads to the third way that we're to put on the clothes of Christ's splendor, and this is to practice our corporate ministry with one another, to practice our corporate ministry to one another. And this is what Paul addresses then in verses 13 to 17. What does all this look like in in real life and in real relationships? Well, listen to what he says bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's talking about the ways in which we're to minister to and with one another in both our corporate life and our corporate worship. Now, there's obviously quite a bit to chew on there in verses 13 to 17, and so that's why I'm going to save that point for next time. But you see how this all weaves together and how we are to walk with Christ and to know Christ and to set our minds on Him and on the things above, even as we live in this earth. This is what we're called to do, to put on the splendor of Christ so that Christ would become more and more real and beautiful and powerful in each one of our lives, and that we would all the more fully proclaim him and demonstrate his glory to the world around us. And we do this by praying and by being in God's word, by being devoted to one another, by gathering as we're gathering now to share in the life and in the worship of us as God's people in this local church. And I'll just wrap this up with one very clear, direct implication of all of this. And it's simply this, that the Christian life, knowing Christ, following Christ, walking with Christ, it is personal, but it is not private. It is personal, but it is not private. Now, that statement is not originally to me. I first heard it from Mark Dever, and and he said that in many different contexts. Pastor Mark Dever, he pastors a church back in Washington, D.C. But it's absolutely true. The Christian life is deeply personal, intimately personal, but it is never private. Because to have union with Christ is to have union with his body. And we can't be faithfully knowing and walking with Christ if we're not sharing in the life of his body our corporate identity, our corporate mentality, and our corporate ministry to one another and to the world. So praise God for the ways he's at work among us and in us and through us. And may it be multiplied and continue more and more. And may you know and live in the fullness of all of his blessings to that end, that we would be ever putting on the clothes of Christ's splendor. Let me lead us in prayer. 
We thank you, O God, for your word. We thank you for your work in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, by your spirit, as revealed in your word, the transforming work you have done in so many of our lives and are continuing to do. May you bring these truths to bear. If there are any present who don't know the hope and the joy and the peace of of being reconciled to you through faith in the work of Christ, may you even now draw them to yourself uh, that they may know such life and such love. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.